This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's Sunshine Week, and the Department of Justice has some new open records guidance for federal agencies. Attorney General Merrick Garland is directing a presumption of openness when it comes to processing Freedom of Information Act requests. Here with the details in studio, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And Justin, let's start with the new guidance. What is this all about? Because we've heard this before, the presumption of openness. It's it's almost an important marker for any administration to put out there at first. And, and, and you've seen lawmakers actually ask the Biden administration to state their uh, backing for a presumption of openness in FOIA. And that's just what Attorney General Garland did on Tuesday by putting out the these new FOIA guidelines that essentially tell agencies that they will not back them, defend decisions that fail to apply a presumption of openness. It also encourages agencies to not just rely on one of the nine exemptions that allows agencies to withhold disclosing information. It says that agencies should not rely on those exemptions unless they can identify a foreseeable harm or a legal bar to disclosure. So essentially telling agencies, unless you have a really good reason to hold back this information, you shouldn't be just relying on one of those exemptions as a, as a sort of reason to, to hold it back. All right. So let's ask them everything they know about Fast and Furious. <laughs> That'll be a good acid test if someone wants to run up that one, up the flagpole. And how does this guidance address the FOIA backlog, which is always a big bugaboo for agencies? Right. So Garland is directing agencies to remove barriers to accessing and reducing the FOIA request backlog, and, and that includes complying with FOIA.gov's interoperability requirements so that requesters can just go to FOIA.gov and not have to deal with a, a bunch of different agency websites and processes. It, they also, or Garland also directs agencies to communicate electronically with requesters to the greatest extent possible. That shouldn't be surprising this day and age, but of course, there are still a lot of paper requests hanging out there. And, and just on a note on the FOIA backlog, GAO put out a January report that said the backlog increased by 18% in the first year of the pandemic in fiscal year 2020. Backlogged requests have generally been trending upwards since fiscal year 16. And of course, the pandemic and a lot of folks going home to work did not help that from a records perspective. All right. And any reactions so far to this latest guidance? Yeah. Well, an advocacy group, Demand Progress, they push for more transparency in government, actually held an event on Wednesday just after Garland released this this new guidance. And they, they applauded the administration for putting it out there. They think it's an important marker, as I said. But Ginger Contero McCall is the legal director at Demand Progress. And she says that while it's important to put these kind of stakes in the ground, they need to see more progress on the front. You know, this guidance is good, but we've seen other administrations commit to a presumption of openness. Uh, We need more. We need greater funding and resources for FOIA offices. I bang that drum whenever I can because I've worked in FOIA offices and because I know what they're dealing with. Chronically understaffed, usually don't have access to very good technology. Technologies are clunky enough to make you make you cry if you try to use them. And, and these are what our FOIA offices are stuck with every day. Well, we certainly don't want hardworking FOIA officers crying over the backlog and the, <laughs> the machinery they have to use to fulfill them. I guess it's a, the biggest danger is a paper cut. So does Garland's new guidance address that issue of support? basic staffing and equipment for FOIA offices? Yeah, he actually urges agency chief FOIA officers to undertake a comprehensive review of all aspects of their agency's FOIA administration. And the guidance stresses the importance of support from agency leadership 
for FOIA officers, which is certainly checkered across across the government. Uh, it also emphasizes proper FOIA training and a full understanding of FOIA obligations by the entire agency workforce, essentially saying that FOIA offices cannot make up ground alone. They need support from the top down and they need the entire workforce to understand you know, open records laws and, and the FOIA law. And what else does Garland say or what else have you learned that agencies can do to keep making progress on FOIA? Well, one thing that the Garland guidance and other folks emphasize is the importance of proactive disclosure. FOIA requires agencies to proactively disclose certain records without waiting for specific requests. If they have no reason to really be holding it back, then just disclose it, and then you don't have to deal with the FOIA process. Danielle Bryan is the executive director at the Project on Government Oversight, and she says increasing proactive disclosures is at the top of her wish list. So many of these problems would go away if proactive disclosure was the default. It's important to remember that that not only is FOIA, those are discretionary, but that is the backstop. It is what we have as citizens to access information is our right to access it. But there's no limit on the executive branch to just to make the decision they're going to proactively disclose, which will reduce all of those pressures on the FOIA officers who are overburdened. And at this point, Justin, we're about 50 years, correct, into the FOIA law. I think it was passed. The first original FOIA was maybe 74. I think that sounds right. It's a lot of administrations, a lot of decades. In your reporting, what do you think is taking 50 years to get this to be kind of a routine, proactively disclosed, easily fulfilled, otherwise type of process? Well, it's certainly a complicated issue, and it varies across agencies. You see some specific agencies actually carry the majority of that backlog. Agencies like the Department of Homeland Security, which have immigration agencies that receive really the bulk of the FOIA requests across government. And then technology is another big issue. You know, agencies are struggling to get their records online or in any electronic format these days. Uh, They have a deadline to do that by the end of this year, and it looks like a lot of agencies aren't going to make that. So that just makes it even harder for agencies to pull requests for FOIA offices to pull requests and and do the work to actually find records for requesters. Yeah, I think that FOIA passing at about the time of roughly Watergate might have made agencies skittish and kind of a circle the wagon type of default. That's personal theory. But then there have been events involving the government over the years that make agencies kind of want to circle the wagons. You've had the Ruby Ridge incident, maybe even in some sense Oklahoma City, and the 9-11 where people suspect maybe more than actually happened of malfeasance on the government's part. And that causes FOIA requests and it also causes the government to try to clam up a little bit. And I think it's partly a very human process, even though it sounds cut and dried. Give me this record, sure, here it is, put your 10 cents on the counter. Yeah, I mean, and, and FOIA actually... Uh, forbids agencies from withholding records just because they would cause embarrassment. But of course, agencies can apply the law in a pretty varied way, and they do. And and what I hear advocates and experts who are much smarter on this topic than me say all the time is that it really comes down to whether agencies want to have this presumption of openness and do these proactive disclosures. And in a lot of cases, it seems like they don't. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures 
an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do 
set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the the, probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, You know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then Let them roll. And that's not always easy. Many of us, if we're being honest, have given up hope on good sleep. But why? Well, if you're like me, you've tried everything and nothing has helped. So 
if we're not going to sleep well anyway, why try? That kind of thinking is so 2021. It's time to rethink our nights and days and demand more from our sleep. Talk with your doctor about how you can seize the night and day. And visit SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more. Looking to expand or move your company? Ohio has the talent you need to scale for growth. Ohio's central location, reliable infrastructure, and top-ranked business climate are here to help you succeed. Get to business. Visit SuccessInOhio.com today.